0: I'm Chris. Hi, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers, your favorite horror podcast with a little glitter tossed in. <laughs> <laughs> Happy New Year, everybody. It's year one, unless you're counting the number of years in President Trump's term. In that case, we're starting year three, but we're not here to discuss that nightmare. We're here to discuss a completely different one. That's right. Little Andy or Jenny. Pregnancy. Pregnancy. <laughs> We're talking about Rosemary's Baby. But before we do that, we need to take a minute and say a special thank you to all of our listeners. Because uh, recently, we just hit the thousand download mark. And uh, as a tiny new fledgling podcast, uh, those numbers are far more outstanding than what we could have imagined at this point. And we need to say a special thank you to everybody who listens to us and supports us on social media.
1: We'd also like to thank our Patreon supporters. We've actually got more hours and bonus content now than we have hours of content on a normal podcast feed.
0: Yeah. And we're going to continue to put that out. We put out like four to five bonus episodes every month on Patreon and they range anywhere from like five minutes to 45 minutes minutes like they're full length episodes sometimes
1: yeah we did a pretty extensive hot take last month on the haunting of hill house we've done all of our sequel ideas for all the movies that we cover we do entrails of a scene where we discuss some of our favorite or most formative scenes from our horror past
0: yeah we sort of break down a scene and tell you why we think it's scary or tense or why we think it has you know earned its way into the pantheon of horror
1: we also give our brightest flame award we've given it to actor actress director
0: and now composer and there's more to come guys so head over to patreon and check that out you can get all of our bonus content for as little as two dollars and if you're really looking forward to upcoming episodes or top tens you can get early access to that for five dollars and stay tuned at the end of the episode where we tell you everything else that's coming out in january and beyond
1: but enough of that let's get into rosemary's baby
0: That's right. Rosemary was preggers in this film and then gave birth to something. Yeah, that's true.
1: (laughs) Well, Rosemary's Baby is a 1968 American psychological horror film written and directed by Roman Polanski, although it was based on the novel by Ira Levin. It was produced by none other than William Castle, who got the rights to the book.
0: Yeah, he's got some serious horror cred behind him. I mean, he made all those movies from the, the 50s and 60s, right? Like The Tingler and House on Haunted Hill, Straight
1: Jacket. T- yeah, oh my God, Straight Jacket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rosemary's Baby is definitely his most critically acclaimed creation.
0: Yeah, and I'm you know I'm sure we'll probably get into some more talk about him. Um, the movie was scored by Christoph Komita. And he goes by another name, I think, sometimes too, right? Is it?
1: Well, he also did the, the lullaby in the intro, which sometimes the the song or like kind of the song that digs into the score a little bit is done by two different people. Mm-hmm. But this was actually done by Christoph um, and, of course, sung by yeah, Mia Farrow. Right.
0: The movie stars Mia Farrow, uh, John Cassavetes, Ruth Gordon, Sidney Blackmer, Maurice Evans, and a very young Charles Grodin for all of you Beethoven fans out there.
1: Uh, The film earned pretty much universal acclaim from film critics and won a lot of awards and got a lot of nominations. In 2014, the film was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress, being deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant.
0: Uh, speaking of those nominations, some of them include uh, Best Supporting Actress at the Academy Awards, for which Ruth Gordon won the award, and Best Adapted Screenplay for Roman Polanski's work. was also nominated for Three Golden Globes, Four Golden Globes, and One BAFTA for Mia Farrow's portrayal of Rosemary Woodhouse. Mm-hmm. Rotten Tomatoes gives the movie a 99%
1: rating, with the site's consensus describing it as a frightening tale of Satanism and pregnancy that is even more disturbing than it sounds thanks to convincing and committed performances
0: by Mia Farrow and Ruth Gordon. And if that weren't impressive enough, take in these numbers. This movie was made on a budget of $3.2 million, but total box office at release was $33.4 million. And in 1960s money, I think today that's roughly about $50 <laughs>
1: <laughs> That sounds about right. Yeah, I got yeah. the same math, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, obviously, Rosemary's Baby deals with themes related to paranoia, women's liberation, Christianity or Catholicism, uh, and obviously the occult. But before we get too much into that, this is Rosemary's Baby. The previous tenant, Mrs. Gardenia, passed away just a few days ago.
0: Oh, Guy, let's take it, please. Do you have children? We plan to. Now, this house has a high incident of unpleasant happenings. Awful things happen in every apartment house. Paramount Pictures presents Mia Farrow
1: in a William Castle production Rosemary's Baby
0: Co-starring John Cassavetes, Ruth Gordon, Sidney Blackmer, Morris Evans and Ralph Bellamy Written for the screen and directed by Roman Polanski From the best-selling novel by Ira Levin Suggested for mature audiences
1: Guy and Rosemary Woodhouse, played by John Cassavetes and Mia Farrow, are a young couple living in 1960s Manhattan. Guy is an actor, still looking for his big break. While apartment hunting, they're shown a space in the historic Bramford Building. Despite the previous tenant covering a closet with a large piece of furniture, they love the space and decide to rent it. Their friend Hutch tries to dissuade them with stories of crazy shit from the building's past, namely witchcraft, murder, and cannibalism. Undeterred, the woodhouses move in.
0: Mm. Crazy shit. (laughs) Cannibalism is not crazy. Cannibalism? (laughs) Cannibalism. (laughs) I can't even talk.
1: Soon, Rosemary meets Terry Gianofrio, a recovering drug addict who has been taken in by Rosemary's new neighbors, Minnie and Roman Castavit, played by Ruth Gordon and Sidney Blackmer. She credits them with saving her life and shows Rosemary a pendant necklace given to her by the Kastavits that has a strange smell. Returning home one night, Rosemary and Guy learn that Terry has thrown herself from the cast of its seventh floor window and has died. <laughs> That’s the sound it made. After comforting Minnie about the death, the cast of it soon befriend the woodhouses, and Minnie gives Rosemary Terry’s necklace, calling it a good luck charm and explaining that the odd smell is Tannis root. After becoming chummy with Minnie and Roman, Guy lands the role of a lifetime, when the original actor suddenly becomes blind. With their newfound luck, Guy suggests that they begin trying for a baby. On the night they plan to conceive, Minnie brings the couple individual glasses of chocolate mousse, but Rosemary cannot finish hers because of the strange taste. That night, Rosemary passes out and dreams of being raped by a demonic monster while her husband, her neighbors, and other crazy weirdos look on, chanting naked.
0: I wonder if that chanting sounds like the chanting from, like, the Grinch or the Hoos. <laughs> would have been so much better but than in
1: latin yes <laughs> when she awakens the following morning with scratches all over her body guy tells her that he had sex with her while she was unconscious so to not miss the chance to conceive You're a bastard creepy rosemary soon learns that she's pregnant and due in june she plans to see dr hill based on recommendation by a friend but many will hear none of it she hooks her up with dr abe saperstein and he instructs Minnie to make Rosemary a daily health drink. The first three months of the pregnancy are terrible for Rosemary. She experiences abdominal pain, loses a lot of weight, grows pale, and has odd cravings for raw meat and chicken liver.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't love chicken liver? I mean, really. With some fava beans and a nice Chianti. She's pregnant.
1: (laughs) Rosemary's friend Hutch is appalled by her appearance and decides to do some research into the tannis root ingredient of Rosemary's drink. But, before he can tell Rosemary any information, he falls into a coma. After a swinging party with their younger friends, Rosemary demands to see Dr. Hill again, which makes Guy angry. But the pain suddenly subsides. A few months later, Rosemary's friend Hutch dies, but not before instructing his friend Grace to give Rosemary a book on witchcraft and a cryptic message, The Name is an Anagram. Because apparently his coma caused him to not be very
0: helpful? That's right. So he's just been laying there this whole time rearranging letters. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: With the help of her trusty Scrabble set, Rosemary deduces that Roman Castavet is really Stephen Mercado, the son of a former Branford resident accused of being a Satanist. She slowly begins to suspect that her neighbors and her doctor are part of a cult, and that Guy is helping them to get their baby in exchange for helping his career. Becoming very disturbed, Rosemary flees and tells her previous doctor about the supposed plot. He assumes that she's delusional, and calls her husband and doctor to get her. When Rosemary goes into labor, she's sedated by Dr. Saperstein, and when she awakes, she's told that she had given birth to a stillborn child. This, she refuses to believe. In the hall closet, Rosemary finds a secret passage that leads to the cast of its apartment. Inside, she hears a baby cry, and finds a congregation made up of the building's tenants and Dr. Saperstein, all admiring her new baby, whom they have named Adrian. When she's horrified by the baby's appearance, she's told that the child has its father's eyes. It's revealed that the baby's father is not Guy, but actually the devil himself. After Rosemary hears and understands this, her husband Guy attempts to comfort her, but she spits in his face. (laughs) That's a great sound effect.
0: Why didn't she spit in his face when he raped her while she was asleep? Oh. (laughs) Roman encourages Rosemary to be a mother to the child, and Minnie
1: tells her that she should be honored that Satan chose her to be the mother. While seemingly reluctant, Rosemary begins to rock the child's evil-looking cradle with a small smile on her face.
0: La 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 la. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, today the film is widely regarded as the classic. We already went over all of its accolades and awards and nominations. Uh, It basically launched Mia Farrow's career as a leading actress, although she had been known beforehand based on her uh, appearances on, of course, the TV show Peyton Place Mm -hmm. and, of course, her marriage. To Frank Sinatra? To Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Uh, Originally, he had actually, Polanski had actually wanted, like, Sharon Tate, his own wife, to play her or even uh, other more established actresses. But in the end, he agreed to hire Mia Farrow, because she had a more waif-like appearance and they could make her look a little bit more sick as she had lost the weight and was, you know, getting very ill from the pregnancy.
0: was well, this some sort of like backhanded compliment. Like, yeah, we're going to hire you because we think we can make you look really fucking sick. <laughs> <I>
1: mean, <laughs> well, OK. But like Frank Sinatra, when she married him, he basically told her you can't work anymore. And she had uh, initially agreed to this. Yeah. But it was a role of a lifetime for her. So she she went she went for it. But eventually, he actually served her divorce papers on set in front of the cast and the crew. So she tried to actually back out to try and mend the relationship. But the guy that played Hutch, Maurice Evans, told her that she would probably win an Academy Award for this.
0: She was nominated for a BAFTA. She was
1: nominated uh, for a lot of awards, but she she was not nominated. And she, of course, did not win an Academy Award like she was told. But it did launch her career. But, of course, her relationship with Frank Sinatra was over.
0: Well, and then she had another relationship with the person who would later cast her in just, you know, the huge chunk of her movie roles. And it's Woody Allen. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's probably for the best that she left Frank Sinatra, but.
1: So I think a lot of the actors and the crew were just super on board with, it, especially if they had a novel to reference, you know, and everyone's super excited about the dailies they were seeing, uh, you know, the rough cuts, uh, you know, as far as the performances and how it was being filmed. They got, I think, I feel like they got a little, maybe a little too into it. There's a scene where Mia Farrow has to cross the tra- traffic mm-hmm. essentially. And in, in full pregnant, you know, makeup or whatever. And, she was convinced somehow to do this, because Roman Polanski told her no one is going to, um, no one's going to run you over because they're going to see that you're obviously pregnant. So yes, the scene was real. Those were real cars. Those were real pedestrians, and they really had to like slam on their brakes so they didn't run over Mia Farrow. And Roman Polanski himself had to film this with a handheld camera because no one else would do it. Everyone else refused to,
0: to do it. And that's one well, I mean that's some commitment to cinema, some real cinema verite there or whatever. But I mean Yeah I mean I don't I don't care about
1: Roman Polanski in this case. I'm like giving my props to Mia Farrow.
0: For real though. I mean, and that's a commitment to a role too. I mean, to walk out into a busy Manhattan street like that, I I mean, I don't know that I would have that kind of trust in a director or even my own performance. I'd be like, uh no. Yeah. But it's a fantastic scene. I mean, it, it works. Mm-hmm. At, you know, at the end of the day,
1: I really wanted like someone to like stop and she had to put her hand on the car and be like,
0: I'm walking here. I'm walking here. <laughs> <laughs> I love that.
1: The biggest winner, I think, from this film, besides, of course, the filmmakers themselves, is Ruth Gordon. Uh, she actually had a little second coming in her career from this. She ended up doing Harold and Maude because of this and a mm-hmm. couple of others. She was a little bit typecast after this because she was so good in the role. Uh, Of course, she played the, the kind of elderly... Uh, neighbor, Minnie, who was yeah. Yeah, making all the health drinks for her, but she was such a character in this film and she was so good.
0: She really is. And like, she won likable. the Academy
1: Award and the Golden Globe.
0: That's right. I mean, she, she's super likable in this movie. It's hard to like, take your eyes off of her whenever she's in a scene. She's fully committed to that role with that accent and everything. And just the way she carries her body just on, on, on cameras is, is amazing to watch in this film mm-hmm. far better. I think than the performance of, of uh, Mia Farrow but um, I mean very well good. she played
1: paranoia very well and I think yeah. she did the job I, I never thought you know I think the problems I had with her was not her but her character
0: and I mean and so and Ruth Gordon plays Minnie in such a way that she doesn't really come across as evil I mean yeah ultimately she is a Satanist right but really the scariest part is that she's just a really fucking nosy neighbor right yeah. so and it's just she's just a vision on screen and I love her uh, and Guy, like Rosemary's husband, was of course played by John Casavetes. But
1: originally, they had actually asked Robert Redford to do it, and he declined. Uh, and then Jack Nicholson. But oh my they God. thought he looked a little bit too.
0: Yeah, so Roman Polanski actually. Too axe
1: murder-y? He loved what? him as far as his talent, but they didn't. They wanted him to look less like weirdly sinister. Yeah. And so eventually, he would work with him again. Of course, with, in, in Chinatown. Chinatown.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, before we go any further in this discussion, we have to give a a minute to talk about Roman Polanski. And yeah. So, I mean, for all of you who don't know history, um, in 1977, he was arrested for drugging and raping a 13 year old girl. He ended up pleading guilty to statutory rape, but fled to Paris whenever he learned of his impending, like, in prison, like prison sentence, and has lived there in asylum ever since. While his actions are completely reprehensible, and I think a lot of the community really, you know, didn't, obviously, didn't support that. People continued to work with him, and he continued to make film. However, it wasn't until this year, 2018, that he was expelled from the academy. So, um, yeah, for the me too movement. Right. And while, while we say, you know, certainly we don't support any of his actions, he made these movies and you can't not talk about them because there are other people involved. People like Mia Farrow and Ruth Gordon and Jack Nicholson from Chinatown.
1: Sure. And I think that he got a lot of empathy uh, for this, at least initially, because of what happened with his wife, Sharon Tate, and the Manson murders that happened exactly. like just
0: a year after Rosemary's baby was, was made. Yeah, this man has lived a troubled, twisted life, right? I mean, either of someone else's doing or his own wrongdoing. But, yeah. I mean... I think they chopped it up to, like, okay, his pregnant wife was just
1: sadistically murdered by you know the manson family and you know who knows what that does psychologically to someone and so they had a lot of empathy for him yeah he's still widely regarded as as a rapist of course that does not change the fact that he you know yeah essentially raped a child
0: other than rosemary's baby in chinatown he also directed repulsion which is a, a really great horror adjacent movie starring catherine Deneuve. um he did what else the pianist yes and um, the Ninth Gate, which I haven't seen. Yeah, with was Johnny Depp, and yeah, and uh, Death in the Maiden, which is another sort of horror adjacent film starring Sigourney Weaver. I have not seen that; it's I fantastic. But <clears throat> with all that being said, I think that his direction of this movie is is amazing. I think that he and his writing of the screenplay is fantastic too. I've I've read Ros- Rosemary's Baby a couple times when I was in high school, and I haven't read it since then. So there's been a, a twenty year gap. But he follows the book so closely in this movie that he even uses chunks of dialogue in it. And I think it was very important to him to take the source material and craft a movie as close to the novel as he could possibly get.
1: And I think later William Castle actually said it would probably have been... The closest a film has ever been to the novel, to a source material.
0: I know that like there were some times that uh, Polanski called Ira Levin, the, the author of the novel, to ask him questions. Like he wanted to know, like, which exact issue of The New Yorker was Guy looking at when he saw that shirt? And Ira Levin's like, who the
1: fuck knows? <laughs> you yeah, know, I mean, he made it up for the movie. He actually made it up for the book.
0: And it's that kind of like attention to detail that really makes this movie what it is. I mean, he, he was in, he was involved in it. He loved his work in it. And he was trying to craft his opus, essentially.
1: Now, what's interesting is in the book, there's a lot of internal thoughts on Rosemary that doesn't really come across in the film. And I think it serves the film as far as its paranoia that way and really not sure what exactly is going on in her head Mm -hmm. outside of that. Because in the book, she's actually actively thinking about like killing her husband and and everything to escape and and everything,
0: but in the in the
1: movie, that never really comes across
0: at all. Well, and Ira Levin is—he's a fantastic horror novelist. If, if anyone hasn't read his books, aside from Rosemary's Baby, he wrote A Kiss Before Dying, which is like really early crime noir thriller, and um, The Stepford Wives, which is yeah, a lot of his famous. stuff is
1: conspiracy based. And he actually wrote a sequel to Rosemary's Baby, which
0: he apparently loved Mia Farrow's performance so much that he dedicated it to her. Yeah, that was his last book before he died. Mm-hmm. Um, he also did what what I consider to be a really un underrated book and movie and that's sliver with uh slither no sliver (laughs) (laughs) with uh sharon stone so i was so excited um he uh he has a lot of like feminist themes in his in his work and um and i'm sure we'll touch on that here in a little bit but um polanski really took that work and, and ran with it and i I don't know much about William Castle's involvement in this movie. Did he want to direct it at some point?
1: I'm not sure. Uh, I feel like he has more of a proclivity for
0: producing than he does directing. He directed Uh, those schlocky, you know, 1950s movies. And I think that maybe he had
1: had a partnership with like Roger Corman and stuff like that. So uh, like he uh, you'll see like John Waters, uh, like he idolizes William Castle. Mm -hmm. And of course, William Castle is known for a lot of his movies that, that he either directed or produced to have a lot of kind of gimmicks in like the theater when he's showing them right. and everything so he is famous in his own right and this is uh this is really not, probably not a good example of the gimmicky kind of stuff that he was doing or the B movies that he was doing this is uh this is a really good example of, like, his, I would say his height, professional height.
0: I wonder if, like, if, if he had the rights to the book and he wanted to direct it, I wonder if the other, like, financiers involved were like, no, this is a piece of serious film and this is not the Tingler, so you can't, you can't make this movie. I don't...
1: Well, I think it was William Castle who actually saw some of Roman Polanski's work that he was doing in the UK mm-hmm. and basically picked him to try and do this. What? because he liked his work and he liked his style and thought he would be the perfect director to do this. And I think that's, I don't, I don't think the story is much more complicated than that. Yeah. As far as uh, I don't think William Castle ha- much, had much uh, ambition to direct this himself based on what I've read, but I could be wrong.
0: Well, he certainly made the right choice with Roman Polanski. I feel so, sure. Yeah. The movie itself deals a lot with, with feminist tones and undertones. Right. Wouldn't you say? Yes. So, I mean, I know that the novel itself was published just a couple of years after like the widespread introduction of, of the birth control pill. And um, I think some people saw that the writing of the novel as sort of a critique on the backlash of feminism. In fact, I mean, so like with with the introduction of the birth control pill, we have a, a character in this movie who has zero control over her body and her you know reproductive self. In essence. It's very similar to what we see today with people being denied birth control for from employers or insurance companies and things like that. But <clears throat> while she has access to this pill, possibly, she doesn't seem to have any access to her body because she's is like controlled by her husband or
1: Yeah, like, and I feel like Polanski doesn't really show us like like a really good like woman's lib kind of example through what it could be. Yeah, uh, He shows it through a woman's plight and injustice. Mm-hmm. And that's how he's showing it here. And because there's a lot of just ridiculous moments, especially looking at it through the lens of the modern day, where she almost has, has to have her husband's permission to do anything. And the doctor and her husband almost own her. Like she's a child or some kind of pet where they have to control, you know, what doctor, like what treatment she has almost no say or agency. And it's, it's just ridiculous now to see that.
0: Well, and I think it's really evident, too, in the scene where she's... Um, entertaining her friend Hutch, it's when he sort of finds out about the whole Tannis root thing, and Roman, her neighbor, comes in, and the two of them start talking about Rosemary and her condition, like she's not even there, and she just stands behind coyly and lets them go on talking about her. And I mean, she doesn't really stand up for herself very often in this movie, and I mean, it's it's pretty evident that it's he's trying to show you like how she could have been a feminist if she would have just stood up for herself and said no. She really. Does that like one time in this movie? She
1: had opportunity, but it. it, She has to wait for like the height of her paranoia and frustration. And if I had to pick two emotions that come out of this movie, for even the watcher as well as Rosemary, you're with her in those emotions. She is paranoid due to conspiracy, wondering if she's going insane or if things are actually happening the way she thinks they're happening. And then there's all that frustration with her lack of agency, and she does not quite know what to do what kind of wiggle room she has and the choices that she has in her life. And so she has to kind of eventually just flex her muscles and just go for it. And ultimately she fails because the system fails her yet again. She goes to her previous doctor whom she had trusted and her doctor is not part of this cult and he's not part of the conspiracy, but he's part of the larger conspiracy
0: of the patriarchy. That is so well put. I (laughs) can, the larger conspiracy. I love that. Uh, Yeah. I, I mean, I can't, I'm trying to think of other examples in the movie. I know that like i read somewhere that, uh, when she's talking, when she gets that witchcraft book from Hutch and her husband takes it away. And I think like he, he, you you see him put it on a really high shelf where it's hard for her to reach, but he puts it right on top of a book about Kinsey sexual studies. So, I mean, like, I mean, how in your face could have more in your face could have been.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about that rape scene for a second. There is of course we know and as as you heard in the synopsis or if you've seen the film uh, she they're trying to have a baby and she is essentially drugged she has slipped a mickey by the neighbors in and the, the chocolate, chocolate
0: mouth
1: and apparently, and of course, that was like a really uncomfortable. That was probably my first uncomfortable moment with the husband, or one of the first major ones, I would say, because he was like, "You ingrate, finish the moose. I don't care if it tastes weird." Yeah, you know, that was a really weird moment for me, where I kind of turned on him completely, uh, and I was like, "This guy's a kind of a creep." And so she, she does it. I mean, she kind of shows a l- that her her frustration or whatever, but eventually she. You know, she had eaten enough of it, but she she did throw it away, I believe.
0: Yeah, she put it in her napkin. She put it in yeah. her napkin,
1: but she, it was enough to, you know, Rufi, obviously, to, to make her pass out because they were going to try for a baby that night. Right. And so there's two rapes going on here. There's the supposed rape that he uses as an excuse, which is sick that that's used as an excuse. Yeah.
0: What does he say? Something like it was sort of fun in a necrophile way. And I'm yeah, like, he's, what the it's fuck? just like, oh,
1: we missed our time. You know, and he's like, no, I had sex with you while you were asleep. Jesus. And she, you can tell that she's bothered by that, but she, she doesn't feel like it's her place to say anything. You can read that in her performance. She doesn't say it, but you can tell that it really bothers her. Meanwhile, there's the real rape because that, that just even though that's an excuse, it's it's still just like almost unforgivable for him to use it as an excuse because that didn't happen. What actually was happening is is what she thought was a dream mm-hmm. was that she was essentially taken to the cult. And uh, this this monstrous, demonic person who ended up being Satan was raping her and impregnating her with, you know, the Antichrist, theoretically.
0: And the thing is, in, in the book like it's it's delivered as a straight dream and so the book really plays on the fact that it may or may not have actually happened and she could just be a more paranoid delusional pregnant woman toward the end of the novel in the movie that's not the case I think that we are pretty much shown that what's going on is accurate you know.
1: Yeah, and it shows like the duplicitousness of like everyone in that room, especially the neighbors, that they're all kind of really enjoying it, right? Painting you your know, body and chanting and, and everything, and it just other. seems it's not even like like a like so much of a celebra- celebratory thing, so much as uh, it's almost like normal for them. I because remember she had that um, she met that friend in the basement while they were like doing their laundry, yeah, who was living with the neighbors. And, of course, it's alluded that they tried to do the same thing to her and that she just wasn't going along with it. And so they ended up basically killing her or compelling her to commit suicide.
0: Well, and I think that we have to believe that they did try to impregnate her because when, one of their first early nights when they're living in that apartment, they can hear the chanting through the wall. And that's, that's when she has her first little dream sequence. Yeah. Right?
1: In a recent interview, Mia Farrow said that the actor playing the double, Clay Tanner, was completely naked during the rape scene. Uh, dressed up in the demonic makeup uh, and the vertical contact lenses. Uh, She said that Tanner spent hours grinding on top of her as they were shooting the rape scene. And after they were done... He got up, shook Mia's hand in a very cordial and businessman type of way and said, Miss Farrow, it was a pleasure working with you. And Mia shook his hand back and said, thank you. And then she says he was a very lovely man. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So that was an interesting little tidbit. Because like, how are you going to play that scene? And you're, and you're told to be completely naked and you're supposed to grind on top of this actress. And he's in demonic makeup. And so she has to go through all of that and like and basically in real life yeah. as an actress. And they just kept it really professional. And she, to this day, really appreciated him. So I
0: just thought that was interesting. I guess it's hard to be professional in that situation. I can't put myself in that situation because I, I, there's no way in the world I could do it. So no, I would be winning no Oscars for that. Um, I love this dream sequence so much, I think, because it goes in and out of what, re- what reality is and what her dream is. And we get a big payoff at the end of the movie based on the dream sequence itself. When she's walking through the apartment to discover the congregation, and we see all the things that she saw in her dream are actually there. A painting of a burning burning building, a painting of Roman's father is standing there, right? Mm-hmm. And in the dream sequence, we see all these things sort of represented in sort of a dreamlike way, intermixed with things like Jackie Kennedy coming in and talking and like her being on the bed and it's floating on water like it really immerses you in how she's feeling at that precise moment what she's seeing but to me this is like the the climax of the movie i think that instead of having a climax at the end we are given as an audience the full picture we know what's going on these people are actually satanists she is being raped by the devil yes and it just leads us on a slope to what is inevitable.
1: Well, he also has some ambiguity there because th- those dream sequences are intermixed, like you said, with like other memories from her childhood or something. And you're hearing voices from like the TV in the background. Mm-hmm. And it's just really kind of it was actually confusing for me the first time I saw it. And I didn't really I was kind of frustrated with the way that was filmed. Yeah, uh, I think on a second or third viewing, I think I would really appreciate it. But the first time I was just like. No, I don't, I don't like how this was filmed. It's kind of a mess.
0: And maybe like the idea of filming a dream sequence has changed over time or something. And we're just not, maybe we're used to something more modern. I don't know. But I, I mean, it was certainly artsy. It was very artsy. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say it's a little, I don't know. It's a little highfalutin there, Polanski. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Roger Ebert had a quote that I liked where he talks about the dream sequence as compared to the ending of the movie. And he says, when the conclusion comes, it works not because it's, it's a surprise, but because it's horrifyingly inevitable. Rosemary makes the dreadful discovery and we are wrenched because we knew what was going to happen all along and could not help her.
1: Yeah. And uh, there's some really good choices here. And I like the, the, the word inevitable. Uh, That he uses because it really is. She has no agency and she's basically along for the ride as much as she tries to fight against it in the end. Right. um, And as much as like at least one person, you know, and a couple of her friends are trying to help her kind of on the sidelines. But she's very, very alone and independent. And she's kept very close to her husband and the people in the building. And it's like she only has these social outlets every once in a while.
0: And it doesn't seem like there's I mean, there's two in the movie. And whenever she has one of those, I mean, one of them falls into a coma, which we have to assume is from witchcraft. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the other one, she's having that party with her friends and they convince her to go look for help, you know, because she's obviously ill as a pregnant woman. And the minute she stands up for herself, the pain goes away. And so do the rest of her friends.
1: And she'd also stopped taking the the health, the, drinks oh, the health drink. Okay, so yeah. that might have been part of it as well. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the book says about that. With one thing that's interesting about all of this to me is that um, she thought, based on what she'd read in the book that Hutch had given her, uh, they were sacrificing babies. They were killing babies. So this whole time... As, as she's thinking about the conspiracy and what's actually might be happening, she thinks they're going to try and take her baby and kill it and sacrifice it to Satan. She does not know or get that it's the Antichrist until the end.
0: Yeah, and I wonder if that's just because it doesn't enter into her mind. You know, I mean, she, she couldn't possibly fathom that that could happen, right? Yeah. And I think that really serves the ending well, I think, because she, when she walks over to that cradle at the end of the movie, she's expecting to see her baby, Right, and she still probably has some sort of well, she's hope. Been hearing it, yeah, yeah, she has some hope that she can still save that child and you know escape with it. And it's not until we see the look on her face that I mean she realizes that I mean her baby is the son of the devil.
1: And you'd almost imagine that she thinks that these people are comically evil, uh, or at, le- at the very least, very black hat. You know, this is they're being fake to me. They're not really nice people. But what's almost, I would say, insidious about it is that they're affably evil. They're they're all the witches are revealed at the end to having the exact same personalities all that they displayed all along. They're just also worshippers of Satan. The cast of its in particular, maintain their casual and friendly personalities even up till the very end. It's just very matter of fact and casual for them that they are worshippers of Satan.
0: It's true, and well, and even though Rosemary knows that they're Satanists when she's walking through that room her attitude toward them is still conversational as well. Cause he tries to say something and she's like, you're in Dubrovnik. I can't hear you. You know what I mean? It's just like, I mean, it's still conversational. It's still oddly friendly. And maybe?
1: It's almost <laughs> seductive in a way, because what if they had been comically evil, you know, she would have run, she would have run again at the end there. She would have tried to start stabbing people. Cause she, that was her initial idea. Oh, yeah. She brought the knife in to stab and get her baby back. But because they were all super nice and, You know, it's like, you should be the mother. You should be, you know, uh, you should feel honored and Mm -hmm. we love you. And We're trying to take care of you. We're trying to take care of your baby. You know, it's all just like everything could be normal, you know, just do it. And, you know, in the movie, you can see her kind of switch and change and be like, I could do this. I could be a mother still. I can still do this. Well my um, relationship with Guy might be over because she spits in his face. <laughs> but she could still be a she could still be a mother. And in the book, she actually is thinking to herself, I will do this because I'm going to try and fight, continue to fight inevitability, and I'm going to raise him against his destiny. And I'm going to try and push him away from this antichrist persona that has been placed upon him. And of course, I don't know how she's going to do that. In the book, he had it actually described the baby as having like horns and a tail. Yep. And like cloven feet. Yeah. And in this, it just kind of alludes that he has um, crazy eyes, crazy, like s- vertically slitted snake eyes or something like the devil. He has his father's eyes.
0: <laughs> what have you done to him? What have you done to his eyes? Um, yeah you use used the word seductive, and I like that too. And I think that's that's what these people have to do, I guess, as Satanists, because they obviously seduce Guy enough to you know get him what he wants in exchange for his wife. And they're doing the same thing to her at the end. I mean, it's like flattery upon flattery, and isn't that what Satan's supposed to do biblically, right? Yeah. So, I mean, they're using what they know, and eventually it serves their means in the end. That's basically essentially
1: what happened in this film, is she was... She's been tempted at the end here, kind of by accident, because they were trying to keep her away from the baby. She finds the baby. They weren't originally planning on having her be the mother. It was Roman, her neighbor, who obviously actually cares about her in this weird, twisted way, you know, is saying, no, the baby needs a real mother. He needs his real mother. And if she's willing to do it, let's let him do it.
0: Well, and the fact that we're sitting here talking about possible sympathy toward a Satanist who was complicit in the rape of a woman, right, just shows, like, how incredibly seductive that kind of offer can actually be from the right mouth. Well,
1: of course, they don't view it as rape. They view, oh, it, no. as, they view it as, like, would you say that Mary was raped by God?
0: Oh, no, I guess I wouldn't.
1: Right? Yep. That's their view. Mm-hmm. That she was blessed, that she is honored, that she was chosen. That's their view. They don't view that she was raped at all.
0: No. So it really depends on your point of view. Yeah. I mean, that's that's completely true and totally valid. I love that. Uh, aside from the dream sequence, I love the ending of this movie. Like the last few scenes after the birth and she's sitting in that bed for all those days and they're coming in and out. And she's slowly just like losing her shit and mm-hmm. ready to do something. She's hearing the baby, too, through the wall. Exactly. Walls. I mean, and they're collecting her milk and things like that. And she knows that shit is not right. Mm-hmm. But that final scene. Oh, yeah.
1: That last thing where they're collecting her milk and she's like... Oh, we're just going to throw it away. And she starts putting stuff in it. Like, like, no, kind of what, are you doing? what are you doing? It's like, if it's going down the drain, why are you like, protecting my milk? You know, it's like, she's
0: like, oh, I just don't want to make a mess.
1: Yeah. So they're just sloppy. There's, you know, they're sloppy people because they have like, obviously they, they're all retired or whatever, but they have like day jobs and everything else. Mm-hmm. Like they're just, they're, they're not so in it. They're not still like regular people that are
0: making stupid mistakes. I just love that, that walk down the hallway that she does where she's holding that knife, like out from her chest like storming down the hallway, just like the cinema photography, the music, all of it works in that one part to make like just, just this amazing moment in, in cinema history is sure. fantastic.
1: Yeah. Ultimately in this film, the bad guy wins. And that's not a trope that we see very often, but it's done very effectively here because it's kind of a soft landing. Uh, you, you expect it basically the entire film, or at least starting at halfway, depending on how much you know about the film beforehand, but you basically know that it's inevitable that it's going to happen and they do win. They win everything they wanted and more. And in the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, the main casualty is Rosemary's agency and, and just a complete inability to choose or make choices for herself or her baby. And that's the, that's the horror story here. That's the tragedy here.
0: Everything else is window dressing. And that's, that's, that's very true. Um, there was a sequel made to this movie in the seventies called uh Look What Happened to Rosemary's Baby or Look What's Happened to Rosemary's Baby. They should have said whatever happened to Baby <laughs> to Baby Rosemary or something. It's just too many different titles being thrown together there. I just think it's nice that it stars Patty Duke as Rosemary. So I Well, mean, she
1: was actually uh originally cast uh, or was going to be cast as Rosemary. Right. She was one of those actors. Jane Fonda was even up for the role. But she yeah. had to do Barbarella.
0: Oh, I'm so glad she did Barbarella. <laughs> God, I love that movie.
1: I've never seen it, but I, I know enough about it that I really want to. It's I so know good. It's, yeah,
0: it's like some sort of
1: allegory. It's supposed to be like really sex positive and, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. It's it supposed is. to be goofy
0: and everything. So, This is another one of those movies, too, where the location sort of becomes a character, right? We see that often. Uh, you know, we were just talking about uh, Hill House on Patreon. And, yeah. and. Um, even places in Suspiria sort of, you know, have that quality. But the Bramford itself really does become like a character in this this movie. Or even the city, Manhattan.
1: Uh, and right. of course, there's a trope for, uh, for anything where like New York becomes a character,
0: mm-hmm. whether it's a horror movie or not. It's called Big Applesauce. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, the Bramford in this novel and the movie was based off the Dakota building, which is an actual building in New York city, which looks fantastic on the outside, but has, you know, a creepy factor to it. Cause later on, this is where John Lennon was shot. Right. And so when I was living in New York, we used to walk by the Dakota sometimes and I'd be like, Oh, where's Mary's baby. And then people were like, no, this is the John Lennon building. I'm like, well, we just have different ideas. It's okay. Yeah.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the the legacy of this film. I think it, it was one of the starting, I want to say it was one of the first films that kind of brought like the cult and Satanism and all of that stuff into film and started that whole paranoia that we saw in the 70s and 80s.
0: Yeah, and there were also starting to be small sects of cults and things like that popping up all over the place around this time. I mean, mm-hmm. we had the development of the Manson family for sure. And shortly after this, there's um oh, what the hell was that guy who made everyone drink the Kool-Aid? You know what I mean? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So I mean like it was it was starting to become very prevalent. But yeah, there wasn't, a, I mean, up until this point, we have a lot of movies about like classic monsters and ghosts and things like that. Yeah. This- and it wasn't <coughs>
1: until this kind of string of movies through the 60s, 70s and 80s where we start seeing films where we see actual like real world quote unquote curses are surrounding these franchises like the omen and the exorcist and poltergeist. Mm-hmm. William Castle was so convinced that there was a Rosemary's baby curse because of the, of course, the Sharon Tate murders from the Manson killings. Uh, He had like a urinary tract infection that wouldn't go away. (laughs) Other maladies and illnesses he suffered during the period for evidence of that. And of course, he was so scared the devil was out to get him for producing these kind of movies and bringing Satan. Uh, He was getting letters from people to say uh, blaming him for bringing Satan back into American film and things like that, that he was so he was so scared the devil was out to get him uh, that he actually
0: remained in seclusion for several years. He it was all that. Howard Hughes style or something. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Well, I mean, and some of that could have just been the ramblings of, you know, a slowly more delusional man or something. Well, he also, but. if anyone at the time had horror on the brain. If anyone, yeah. Yeah. Um Straight <laughs> Such a good movie too. I think, I mean, as far as, like, legacy of this film goes, like we said, we talked about some of the movies that came before it, even that William Castle produced. And while we look back on them fondly, now, at the time, I think people just really thought of it as, like, schlock horror. And I know that, you know, in this in this day, we throw the term elevated horror around all the time. Right. And I think this is sort of just like the precursor to to that sort of like term. Right. Mm -hmm. I think this is one of the first movies that we could actually say is a well-respected, critically acclaimed elevated horror film. Agreed. Um, nominated for lots of awards, and people just really took it in in a way that it wasn't just, like, marketed to young children on a Saturday matinee, mm-hmm. you know? So it, it really brought about a total change, not in just horror filmmaking, but in filmmaking in general. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at Polanski's work after this and things like Chinatown, you know, which eventually won best picture, I mean, he really learned a lot from this set and, and ran with it. And I think that it was probably copied and studied and it still remains really famous. You might have heard our episode on Annabelle.
1: And I feel like obviously a major uh, call out in Annabelle in its structure and its characters and the themes is of course calling out to Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, the entire um, movie itself, really. I mean, the main characters of the film are are named after the main actors, Mia and John. You know? Isn't their
0: last name Woodhouse in that movie too? Um
1: I'm not Mia sure. Woodhouse? Maybe. It's possible. Yeah, I think so. But uh yeah, and and we see it parodied. Of course, like anything from like Simpsons to Roseanne is parodied Rosemary's baby. That's right. You know, and it's I think it, it really has garnered a lot of respect in the community to where it, it does. It is looked at as kind of an example of what paranoia outside of Hitchcock can be achieved in horror filmmaking.
0: That's, it's very true. And you know that you've reached some sort of like pop culture zeitgeist when even people who've never seen the movie know exactly what it's about and how it ends, you know? And I, I mean, that's just a level of respect that doesn't happen all the time.
1: At the end of the day, it's definitely earned its place in movie history and fame for its achievements in filmmaking and paranoia and, you know, women's rights and all of that. And I think it's justified.
0: I wonder if the sales of Scrabble sets, like, skyrocketed after this and how long the line at Vidal Sassoon was. I mean, many people owe a debt of gratitude to rosemary's baby in a lot of different ways milton bradley for sure Mm -hmm. well i think we have a couple questions chris um is this a horror movie nah no not at all not even horror adjacent it's just straight up high drama Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is definitely a horror film Mm -hmm. ladies and gentlemen only two people died and they were both off camera well i mean number of deaths doesn't make a film horrific right but i know yeah
1: yeah obviously it's a horror film i mean you feel horrified would you call it horror
0: adjacent? No, it's horror. Straight up horror. Straight up horror. Yeah. I mean, the devil's in it for God's sakes. So, I mean, that's pretty scary.
1: Yeah. It does deals with Satanism and the occult and paranoia and all the feelings it makes you feel. And that's right. The themes. And, and of, like we said, the true horror, um, underneath the layers is of course, you know, the, the
0: women's lack of agency and choice. And I think that, I mean, with, with its history, which we've you know already talked about at length, I mean, like, just the homages over the years and its level of respect that it's garnered just really makes it, like, a, a top horror movie. And I think that, I mean, this is one of those films that sort of wears the badge of horror with, with pride. Uh, were you scared when you were watching it? Uh, Scared that I was going to start
1: screaming at the screen at Rosemary for not, like, doing what I wanted her to do. <laughs> yeah.
0: all of them witches. Well, of course they are. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I don't think I was really, I wasn't scared when I, when I read the book, I wasn't scared the first time I saw this movie. I was more compelled. I think is a better word. Like I, uh, the story really pushes me forward. And I, I like it. People call it a slow burn and it is, you know, and you, you have to have patience to watch this movie.
1: This movie is slow and I was frustrated with it. And the more I talk about it, the more I like it. But when I initially saw it, I was just like, this is a little overwrought. And seeing it through a modern lens makes you even just be that much more frustrated with her lack of agency. And you're just like, come on, just leave, just go, just run, you know, leave, go. You don't just don't tell anyone, just go to your friends or something, just do something. And she just, felt so boxed in and, and in a very real way she was. And at the end of the day, you have to feel empathy for her.
0: And that's a very valid critique. I, when I, I've, I've shown this movie to people over, over the years. Um, and I always have to preface it by saying it's a little boring, you know, like you're going to have to stick with it to, to get to your, to your emotional payoff or whatever. And, that's just something that I will stand by for the rest of my life I love this movie it's definitely in the, the top 20 horror films if not the top 10 for me but I mean I, I realize it's pacing problems and well
1: yeah. it's it's not that it has pacing problems as far as like when you when I think of pacing problems I think of like disjointedness. It's fairly consistent. It's like watching a slow moving train wreck, slow motion. You know exactly what's happening. You know, what's going to happen, but you can't tear your eyes away, but you have to just sit there and watch it happen. And so that's kind of
0: the feeling I had watching this movie, at least a little bit. Inevitability. And finally, and some would say most importantly, who's the hottest guy in Rosemary's baby. Definitely her like previous doctor. Uh, Charles Grodin. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty hot. I mean, like, eh, I mean, if you look at him now in <laughs> like those Beethoven movies, you wouldn't say so. But when you see him on screen, like, oh my god, it's a young Charles Grodin. I uh, I would have to go with her husband though, John Cassavetes.
1: Such see, okay. I just didn't think he was. No, yeah.
0: I just... mean, you have to look past the rapist persona of him and just at the physical qualities of his body. We're finally given a movie where we have more male characters. This doesn't happen very often in things that we talk about. And I mean...
1: They're still a bit thin on
0: the ground as far as anything... Maybe Dr. Shand, that guy who's always playing the recorder in the chanting sessions. I mean, who knows? Well, I think that just about wraps up Rosemary's Baby, everybody. We're going to lull it to sleep. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Tell us what you think about Rosemary's Baby um, or its subsequent sequels. Sequel? And remake. And remake. Um, oh, my God. that terrible We didn't even TV talk remake. about the remake. It's not. It's a terrible TV remake. Just avoid it at all costs. Continue the conversation on social media with us. Tell us what you think about Rosemary's Baby or even this episode. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at the TheFilmFlamers. And you can email us at, tired
1: at filmflamers.com. That's right. And hey, guys, if you really like our content, you like this episode or any others, go ahead and give us a rating and a review on iTunes. That would really help us out and uh, give us
0: some feedback. That's right. If you need a little bit more space for comments or you have suggestions about the show, just shoot us that email. If you really like our work as it is, click that five-star rating and leave us just a short review. It really brightens our dreary days every time we see something like that. Yeah. Uh, We want you to join us later on this month when we do our top favorite horror movie scores. That's right. This one's going to be an epic top ten list.
1: Yes, I am putting all of my heart and my soul into it, and I am slowly whittling down from possible contenders to 200 to <laughs> think i've got it down to
0: about 100 now i have started actually crafting my tent so i'm just about there i give myself another week and i'm ready to go but that'll be coming in the middle of january and in february we want you to join us when we cover some horror romance fatal attraction that's right we will not be ignored dan And join us on Patreon, where we're covering some sequel ideas for Rosemary's Baby. We're going to be giving our Brightest Flame Award to Best Makeup Effects. We'll have some more of those entrails of a scene to talk about. And some more hot takes. I think we're going to do Anna the Apocalypse, too. Yeah. Finally. We missed it in December, but we're going to catch it and give it to you in January. Well, Chris, I think that just about does it for us today. Happy New Year, everybody. And until next time... Sweet dreams.